Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to remind you to not worry. Our staff is accustomed to dumb questions. Here is the captain. Yeah, I'd like to sincerely apologize for all my dumb comments and questions for the last seven years, but I won't apologize for saying it's good to be seen and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Well, today we're just plum dumb with happiness because we are still sipping on some pineapple upside down cake from Imprint Beer Company out of beautiful Hatfield, PA. You guessed it. This is a dessert style sour beer. ABV 6% garage grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. And here's some cheers to our good friends for helping us out with this week's set of shows. First up, a cheers to Danielle in Christchurch, Dorset. A big shout to Christina in Wallace, North Carolina. Here's a cheers to Andrea L. in Parts Unknown and also Mary Rosewater in Parts Unknown. Double cheers. A big we like you chip to Brandy in Columbia City, Indiana. And last but certainly not least, we have a big, huge cheers. And of course, a Ron Swanson please and thank you that goes out to Jennifer C. in Atlanta, Georgia. Jennifer is a longtime listener and my new best friend. That's right, because she and everyone else that we just mentioned here today, well, they went to truecrimegarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we are forever grateful. That's right, people. Say it with me. B-E-E-R-U-N. Beer Run. For everything true crime, check out truecrimegarage.com. If you want to support the show and get something in return, check out our store page and pick you up something snazzy and that's enough of the business all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime We are in Boardman, Ohio for part two of this week's true crime story. And we already discussed the first two still unsolved cases. The first being that of Thomas Bard, who was killed in December of 1970. He was found badly beaten, actually found by a police officer. Thomas was unconscious when found, taken immediately to the hospital, placed in intensive care, where sadly he passes away Days later, never regaining consciousness, police are never able to ask him any questions about who attacked him or how he was attacked or why. Brad Bellino was the second in this sad series. He was abducted on the last day of March, 1972. And according to the coroner's report, 
He was killed more than 24 hours after he leaves his best friend's house, and his body is found on April 4th, 1972. There were unconfirmed sightings of Brad on that Saturday, but police have said since that they don't believe those sightings to be accurate, as they have information and evidence that suggests that he was held somewhere by his captor until he was killed. Then at some point, the killer or killers place him in that trash container where he is found on April 4th. The killer or killers possibly, I say likely, Captain, covering him with debris before leaving the scene. Now, both of us have reviewed this picture, and I want to describe this picture to the listeners. What it is is we have a normal-looking trash truck that comes around and picks up, you know, everybody's trash and it picks up the dumpsters and it empties the trash from these dumpsters right into the back of the trash truck that has the trash compactor back there. So we've all seen those, but this is 1972 when Brad Bellino's body is found and all the papers refer to this dumpster as a trash container, which I think is much more fitting Once you see the picture, you go, okay, I don't know that I would call that a dumpster. You know, nowadays, when we say the word dumpster, you think of these very large objects. I mean, I'm, I'm six foot one. And a lot of times these dumpsters come up to my shoulders or, you know, almost my chin, I guess. Luckily I've never been in one, never had to go dumpster diving, but, uh, I'm saving that for my, my senior years, but, um, the, uh, this glory years. Yes, the cold years. This is a a container that is considerably smaller than what I would call a dumpster. And you see the two officers standing next to this dumpster. So the refuse collector, he spots the boy's feet sticking out of it and goes over and tries to push them down thinking it's just a mannequin, right? Because this is in in a shopping area of town you know, normal trash store type trash in these, in these trash containers that he's collecting. And he quickly figures out, no, this is, this is a body. He calls the police. I've seen the reports, captain. I think the police were on the scene seven minutes after it's like six or seven minutes after he calls it in. And in this picture, we get a really good idea of the size of this trash container because we have two officers who are responding and they're standing next to this trash container in this picture. And again, you can see this picture. It's pretty readily available on the internet, but if you want a guarantee to find it, go to porchlightonline.org and click on news. It's like the first thing that comes up. We'll also put it on our social media at true crime garage on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Yes. And this is the picture that, is really like now infamous in the town of Boardman. This is one that I've heard over the years and seen discussed on message boards over the years where people will say, yeah, I grew up in the 70s in in Boardman, Ohio, and I saw that picture. This picture was in the newspaper. This picture like scared the hell out of children and and parents, of course, because you 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 are seeing the body recovery site. One thing I wanted to ask you before we move on too far here, get your opinion on, I've always kind of struggled with this. If I had not seen this picture and somebody told me that that boy's body was found in a dumpster, I would tell you that I would lean on the side of two perpetrators or at least two people dumping the body to get it up that high and into a large dumpster. This captain, it appears to me, and I'm again, I'm judging off of these two officers who appear to be average height. This appears to me like this trash container probably comes up to their waist, maybe, maybe Just a little bit above their waist. Yeah, yeah, belly button or elbow level. Um, the kid Brad is listed as approximately eighty pounds. I've never won any strongman contest. I don't think that's ever going to happen for me. But, uh, you know, what, what do you think? Do you, do you lean more towards two people? Obviously it would be easier for two people to put him in there, but I don't think necessary. I think even if it was a large dumpster, it's not impossible to just say that there was one perpetrator, but I think what your point is, is because this one is only waist height that it would be pretty 
easy for somebody with maybe not even that much strength to be able to put him inside that dumpster. Yeah, I think all you have to do is get something that's 80 pounds, unfortunately dead weight, and you have to be able to get it up to probably your chest height to to put him in there. And we don't know how he was lugged, but I would imagine the way that this goes down. And because this case is unsolved, you always have to kind of look at these and go, okay, well, why is it unsolved? Well, it's unsolved because unfortunately the killer wasn't witnessed by anybody, right? The, the abduction, we don't know at what point Brad was intercepted between his house and home, between his home and Don's house. Right. We don't know if he willingly hitched a ride and got in the wrong car. We don't know if somebody pulled up and had to grab him off the street or maybe two people grab him off the street. All we know is that this is a, a sexual assault homicide and involving a juvenile victim. And but you you look at these things and go, why are they unsolved? Okay, well, we we know no witness for the abduction, however it happened, whether he, no witness of him getting into a vehicle willingly. And we also don't have we don't have a witness saying, Well, I saw the the body being dumped as well. So I'm picturing under the cover of darkness, middle of the night, vehicle pulls up as close as they can to this trash container. Maybe they know the trash schedule or or know it loosely. If this were me, if I were the perpetrator, and and remember, we've discussed this plenty of times. The the killer's goal, when you see a sexually related homicide, the killer's goal, we don't have to get too far into that to know what it is. That's already taken place up to this point. Now, once the murder is committed, the killer or killers have a problem. They have a body that they need to get rid of. I'm guessing here, Captain, that it may be no coincidence that this trash is being collected that morning, early morning, 7.55 a.m. is when the truck pulls up to empty this thing. And if nobody spots him in that container beforehand, well, he's he's off to the incinerator, off to the landfill, wherever that trash truck was going and may have never been discovered at all. And maybe that was the killer or killer's intention. And you pull up there the night before under the cover of darkness, maybe in the middle of the night, one, two, three in the morning, place him in there and then attempt to cover him up as much as you can with some of the debris and the boxes that are already found in that container. Well, I believe this case because of the time period, if it would have happened, if it would have happened in the last couple of years, I think this case would have been solved very quickly because like you said, at some point, Unless the murderer lured him into his house or into their house, that there's multiple crime scenes. So there'd be evidence on there'd be evidence on Bradley, right? On his clothes. There'd be fibers. There would be and if he was placed somewhere else now, look, he could have been sexually assaulted and murdered within a vehicle and then placed in the the trunk of that vehicle and driven around for a couple of days. It's, it's also a rural, you know, it's on the outskirts in, in, in the sense where, like we said, you have shopping centers and stuff, but a couple of miles down the road, you can find a place to dump a body. And that didn't happen here. This, this body was dumped in a trash can. So again, that I think that leads to your idea of the person possibly knowing trash schedule, or we could just be as simple as, I have this victim in the back of my car. I got to get rid of it at some point. Maybe I go out to my car and I can really start telling that there's a dead body in my car. And now I, I'm panicked and I, I can't go look in a rural area for the best dumping spot. I have to now just find a place to put this victim. Right. And it feels like to me, it, it feels like a poor choice of driving to what sounds to me to be one of the busier areas of town back then. We should we should state that the population back then would have been between 30 and 35,000 people. And as the captain pointed out, you have, this is a growing town. Boardman is a growing town where you have parts and pieces of it that have a lot of homes and have a lot of shops and businesses and things like that. But there are also country roads. There are also roads where 
the businesses are way off of the way set back from the road. And right. that's some of the spaces that had Brad made the entire trip from Don's house to his house. That's kind of given the, the landscape of what he would have traversed during that time. And so it seems a little odd to me for someone to drive into this busy area of town to dispose of the body. But I guess if you have a situation where for whatever reason you, you don't have the ability to bury because what I'm getting at is I feel like the killer hoping to get lucky that the trash is actually collected with, with him still there is your hope that you're, you're getting lucky in concealing the body where there's other ways and avenues of doing that. But for whatever reason, this killer or killers just chose not to. Well, and like you said, maybe this murderer knows the the trash schedule and the, and that was a part of their plan or they just know the schedule of that building. I mean, this is in the seventies. A lot of these towns shut down by 10 o'clock at night. No restaurants would be open. Uh, maybe most of the bars would have been closed by that point. There might not have been much of a nightlife for this town in the seventies. The third victim in this series takes us to January, 1975. This is when another boy aged 13, he goes missing on Friday, January 17th, 1975. This is David Evans. This was a, a great little kid. I know they, they all are, and I'm not picking a favorite here, Captain, but I very much enjoyed reading about David Evans, who he was, how he was. In a lot of ways, he was very much a lot like Brad and probably a lot like the other boys that were 12 or 13 years old growing up in Boardman, Ohio in the early to mid-70s. David went to Boardman Center Middle School, the same as Brad. He played in the band. He got good grades. He didn't have a ton of friends. David was not extremely outgoing or quite as adventurous as Brad as well. Because he to be. played the piccolo. Uh, I I wanted for you being the musician. I wanted to find what instrument he played, and I I could not find that. Well, it's the piccolo, and that's why he didn't have a lot of friends. David is said by most or all that I could find anyway to be more reserved, more likely to sit back, observe and study people rather than just to dive into situations. David, like Brad, was a little smaller for his age, but David was a mighty little man. This kid had the will and determination to overcome the obstacles of life. David was born with what all of the reports are calling a narrow left hand. So this is a hand that for whatever scientific biological reason never fully formed before his birth. So his left hand was a thumb and two fingers. However, David never let this minor issue set him back in any way. David, just like Brad, played baseball. And as we all can imagine, any game where one will be catching, throwing, and batting will, well, could get quite difficult for David's situation. Well, and maybe not so hard once that fingers and, and hand that you do have grows to full size, but especially when you're a kid, you know, throwing a baseball or throwing a football when you're a kid with small hands is, is hard enough, let alone to only have half of a hand. I'm sure there were even those at the time that thought maybe David would never be able to participate in certain sports because of the situation, but not this kid, Captain. David's father would later tell the papers that David spent most of one entire summer when he was off from school learning to play with this added difficulty. So this kid, I'm sure with a little help with, you know, from his parents, siblings, and, and friends taught himself to play ball so that he could go and sign up and play baseball with this, uh, added difficulty. Yeah. And again, with this, um, handicap, it would make playing certain instruments a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't obviously afraid of doing that. He wasn't going to let it set him back. He was going to do the things that he wanted. He was going to to try to do the things that he thought would bring him enjoyment. And it seems like he was very successful with that. And that's one thing that kind of, it was inspirational to read about that. And, and really makes this story even sadder. 
Now, oddly enough, here's another little nugget to this story that is just one of those haunting parts of a story that really just kind of sticks with you. This is something that, uh, having learned this, I will not be able to shake this from memory when it comes to David Evans' case. As far as all of the reports go, and I'm going to say this twice because it might take a second to set, set in here. David was last seen by his own father in passing. Okay, so David was last seen by his own father in passing. The way that this works is, is just like this. So David was last seen at 6 p.m. by his father in their own neighborhood at the intersection of Stilson Place and Withers Drive. This is just about two dozen houses away from his own. So roughly 25 houses away from where he lived is the last place that anyone has ever reported to have seen this boy alive. Now, what's weird about this, so David is is walking home. He's He's returning home. He went to Boardman Lake. Apparently, he had been checking on the lake from time to time to see if it had frozen over so he could skate on it. Well, he went and checked that day, and it's my understanding, Captain, that he did not bring ice skates with him. He was going to check to see if it would be thick enough to skate on at some point. Right. He goes to the lake. He finds that, no, the the ice is still not thick enough. And so he's returning home. And now we know this because he happens to bump into his father. His father's driving out of the neighborhood, leaving. His father was attending night classes at Youngstown University. So at this intersection, you know, he sees his boy, rolls down the window. David walks over and talks to him for a little bit, tells him he went to the lake. The ice isn't thick enough. Dad says, hey, I'm going to my night class. Are you going home? Yes, I'm going home. Okay, I'll see you when I get back. Well, that ends up not being the case, unfortunately. David's father returns home from his class and finds that David is not at their house. David never made it home that evening. Well, like you said, it's 10, 10 12 houses away. It's, it's, it's about two dozen houses from, from his, his home. So it's very, very close this this boy is almost home. Yeah, he's minutes from being at his house. You know, threat level midnight at this point. Exactly. So of course the Evans family they immediately jump into search mode. So it's not a long period of time for his night class. So David not being there is not. No alarm bells are going off until the father returns and says, "Wait a minute, I saw him on my way." to my class an hour and a half ago. And he was very close to home telling me that he was next stop was home. Right. I'm going home, dad. The first thing that they do, they're in search mode. They call the high school, which was hosting a basketball game that night. They wanted to see, well, maybe did he bump into a friend and they decided to walk to the high school and watch the basketball game? Or maybe he had a change of heart and went to the basketball game himself They very quickly confirm with teachers there that, no, David is not at the high school. Nobody saw him there that night at the basketball game. They call his friends to no avail. Now, the scary part is when they start calling hospitals looking for their son to see if maybe he was involved in some kind of accident. And no, they still know David. So very soon after making these calls and doing a little bit of searching themselves, They call the Boardman Police Department. They tell them that their 13-year-old son, David Evans, did not return home earlier that night. They told police David was 4 foot 10 inches tall. This is going to sound almost like I'm reading the same description of the Bellino kid that we talked about in yesterday's episode. David Evans was 4 foot 10 inches tall, about 80 pounds. He has medium-length blonde hair, brown eyes. He had scar tissue on his left eye. This was from an operation that he had at some point. He had the narrow left hand that we discussed. They said that he was wearing a blue plaid jacket with some red in it. Uh, It had fleece lining and a fleece collar. He was wearing suede ankle high shoes, a 
maroon and blue sweatshirt, blue jeans, and most likely his medical ID. So David was diabetic, would often wear a medical ID to tell anybody, should you find me and I'm not awake, I'm unconscious, I have diabetes. All right. So what I see here, Captain, is a case that appears to be you know, it's it's a couple years later, but it appears to be very much like the Brad Bellino case. And again, victimology. Victimology is almost the same. Almost the same kid. And uh, like you said, height, weight, and also just the circumstances. Yes. It's, it's getting dark and the kid is returning back to his home on foot. Friday nights too. I believe both of these are on Friday nights and they're both Friday evenings. And really if, if Brad is abducted after seven 30 and he was in fact in route to his own house, that trek could only have taken him at, at the longest, what 45 minutes an hour. So he should have been home by eight 30 ish. And I know, I know these are kids that are given the time, so we don't have, you know, Don always says it was about 7.30. So 8.39, he should have been home. David Evans, spotted by his father at 6 o'clock. We're getting a good time from David Evans' father because David Evans' father has an appointment to make to. He doesn't want to be late for his own class. So he right. knows, I saw my son, and, and he's going to give us a very accurate time frame of 6 p.m. And, and again, as you pointed out, he's, he's just blocks from his house. He's just blocks from his house at this. A point. couple differences right away, though, is is in Bradley's case, we he could have had a distance to get to to go home, yeah, making it easier to want to hitch a ride from somebody. Yep. As far as David's case, he was, you know, like you said, twenty some houses from his his house. I, I wouldn't assume that somebody would jump in a car. The major differences here are a few, and and you got into some of those. Some additional information here. As we said, David is diabetic. From my understanding, David required an insulin shot. I believe it was roughly like every 12 hours. So he would have been due for his next insulin shot the next morning at 730 around breakfast time. So the the major scary part here for the family is this is not a situation where Okay, he might turn up tomorrow, but if he doesn't, uh, in, in a couple days, he'll turn up. No, this is this kid needs his shot, or bad stuff is going to start happening. Right. And so with Brad, with his case, we got this adventurous kid. Maybe hitchhikes rides. David is much more reserved. Everybody said there's no way this kid would have gotten into anybody's car willingly. He, he wouldn't even approach the vehicle and talk to the person. So a little bit difference in personality. And then of course the medical issues with David. And then there's this scary, scary fact. And oh my God, if, if I, if this is the knife in the heart, if you're a parent with a kid who's only been missing a short period of time at 1130 PM that night, David's hat that he was wearing, he was wearing a red knit hat was found at Stilson Place in Withers Drive. That intersection, the same intersection that his dad last saw him. And this hat is confirmed by the parents to be that of their sons, David Evans. They said that the police said that snow was trampled in about a three-foot circle around this hat. This, to me, points to an obvious abduction. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K 
to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Cheers, everybody. Cheers to you, Captain. 
Hope everybody's having a good week and we're finding you well. And let's get back to our true crime story. Before we jump back in here, Captain, I want to shift gears just very briefly because there's something that I wanted to test out here on our show. You know, you and I and the Garage listeners, we understand that this show and listening to the show, being a part of the garage group is more uh, more than just about this. It's about trying to do some good along the way. I wanted to try a little experiment, and I'm hoping that the listeners will join in and help us with this. We are very lucky to have a, a great audience, a lot of listeners, people that are very engaged and people that want to make good change themselves. And when we've covered cases, it's very common. I'm going to peel back the curtain here and let the listeners take a look behind the scenes for a minute. But very often when we cover a case, we usually will get some information in the case. You know, we've we've seen this with missing persons cases. We've seen it with unidentified remains cases. We've also seen it with uh, cases w- that there are suspects and information that's still needed in cold cases where we receive some information or we have been told, hey, when you guys covered this, we received a few tips. Now, I wanted to see if we could turn this into a bit of a crowdsourcing technique and see if this works. Because we have such a great audience all over the world and a very engaged audience, I wanted to see if we could pull something off. And I know that the Delaware County Sheriff's Office, they have an outstanding warrant for a man named Thomas Blankenship. And I'll give a brief description of him here, but we'll put a picture up on our social. I want everybody to to send this out to everybody, to retweet it, to send it to other people, to see if we could track down somebody that law enforcement is looking for. He's described as six foot two, 175 pounds, gray hair brown eyes. And he is again, wanted by Delaware County Sheriff's office, which is in central Ohio, but he has ties to West Virginia and really ties to all kinds of cities in the great state of Ohio. But that doesn't mean that he is in any of those locations. So share his picture, share his information, and let's see if we can get a tip on his location and his whereabouts so that he can be arrested and that warrant can be served. Now, we were talking about this David Evans case and how immediately to me, captain, his hat being found kind of trampled in the snow at that intersection looks to me like we always talk about there was somebody was killed in their home. There was no sign of a struggle or no sign of a break in this to me is sign of an abduction because it's sign of a struggle right there in the streets where somebody probably pulled up maybe one or two persons, they have a confrontation with this boy and grab him and put him in their car. You know, we have, we have his family, we have his teachers, we have his coaches that are saying David was shy and reserved, especially with strangers. His parents said they didn't think they, that he would willingly go off with a stranger. He's not the type to hitch rides. He's shy, reserved, Again, this is echoed by everybody that knew David, his teachers and his baseball coach, and the hat trampled in the snow points to a sign of a struggle and then an abduction right there in the street. Again, a a difficult situation because you just saw your son within the last couple hours. Then you go back and you're retracing his steps, at least the steps that you know, and, and pretty quickly you find, like you said, a sign of a struggle or at least a sign of something's not right here. Yeah, there's something there's something happened. I mean, you heard the initial suspicions that the parents had that maybe he went elsewhere, went to the high school basketball game and they checked and called friends and called the high school and you're you're being told no over the phone, but you're still hopeful and then you find his hat right. trampled in the snow and now that like confirms that oh We might be looking for him in the wrong places because he probably didn't go somewhere willingly. Now, I want to talk about the the police work that was conducted in the search for David Evans. The Boardman Police Department did a great job. 
I mean, these cases, we say that they're unsolved and it's all these years later, but from everything I have seen, Captain, and everybody that I've spoke to, these cases are not unsolved because of a lack of effort by the Boardman Police Department. No, they brought in everybody that they could think of and and went to every they they went to every effort to try to locate these kids in David Evans' case for six days. We got volunteers, we got law enforcement searching for David on the ground. They even brought in a helicopter from the National Guard to try to help search and find David Evans. The retired Boardman police chief Glenn Bowers was in it and remembers overlooking the snow in Boardman Park and parts of Mill Creek Park. The Boardman police really worked this missing case well, as I said. They did all the right stuff, calling on other agencies. At one point, Captain, they will even seek the help of the FBI. Now, the FBI kind of denies this request, and I say kind of because while they didn't put any agents, they didn't dedicate any agents to the case, they did say, you know, if you need our crime labs or you need use of some of the resources that we have that you don't, we are happy to help you. Just, you know, send us your stuff and we we can test it. We can help analyze anything that you want. But they never dedicated an agent to the case. And I believe they were, from what I've been told and what it looks like to me, they requested the FBI's help several times. So that's why I say that these cases don't remain unsolved due to a lack of effort. And this is not a situation where we have a police department that's going, no, we don't worry. We can handle this. Right. Uh, no, they're saying, yes, please. Anybody that wants to help, we will accept your help. Let's let's band together and find out who who did this. Well, I wish, uh, because like you said, this is a community that's under 40,000 people. So it's just, it's not that these people, it's not that law enforcement in these areas are incompetent. They're just inexperienced with some of these things. And even though, this is there's a trend now going in their community even more of a reason to reach out for outside sources and and for to connect with other law enforcement agents that have been through this process multiple times and just again not not better just more experienced and it, that's exactly right and what we've seen here too that i want to go into the kind of the thoroughness of the boardman police department and in their efforts to find David Evans. So I've seen documentation that the Boardman police officers were actively calling the high school and the hospitals and other people it, this after being told by the parents, we've already called, you know, right. those locations and they're saying, no, that's cool. We're going to call them as well. They immediately called the state highway troopers, notifying them to be on the lookout for this missing boy. And they called surrounding jurisdictions and agencies as well to be on the lookout for this boy. So if somebody was transporting him somewhere or by chance, if he had run away for some reason, that maybe he would be spotted elsewhere. Now, David Evans' case is different from Brad's um, in the sense that Brad's had a lot of unconfirmed sightings that, again, now we believe to be inaccurate based off of what the police have said about the investigation and about their case. David Evans was, was not the same way there. There was one or two situations where somebody called in and said, I might've seen the Evans boy, or this person might have information on the Evans boy. Now, one thing that the police did and did very well in this case too, is they canvassed the area, the neighborhood, because we have a crime scene that is much smaller to work with than the potential abduction scene of Bradley Bellino, right? We have that intersection where his father says, I saw him there, spoke to him there at 6 p.m. ish. And in that same intersection, near that same intersection, his hat is found. So police canvassed that neighborhood, David Evans's own neighborhood, knocking on doors, and they took notes on every address, you know, who lived there, if they did talk to somebody, if they saw anything, if they heard anything. Most of the people really didn't see anything or hear anything. There were a few people that said, I think I might've saw something, but at the time didn't know if it was anything. The, the best possible piece of information 
was somebody having seen a vehicle where they thought that they saw a struggle between two people. And the, the problem with this, this witness statement is it was actually two witnesses that gave different statements. It was a husband and wife that were returning home and they lived near that intersection. And they happened to be returning home roughly about the time that it would be believed that, that David was abducted. He's last seen by his father, talks to his father. He's only 20 some houses away from his, his destination. Yeah. So we're talking about a very small time period of, in which something bad could have happened. Right. And so this husband and wife, again, they have different stories of the same story. And it's not that it's not that either not to be believed. It's just, these are normal people going about their everyday lives and right. they're, they're witnessing something that is only important later when you know that a child has gone missing. It's not important at the time. And there was obviously nothing alarming enough about it for either of them to take notice from the report I have read. Obviously one of this married couple was driving. The other was in the passenger seat and they had varying stories. And these stories varied simply because the person driving said, yeah, I thought I saw this, but keep in mind, I was paying much more attention to the road and where I was going. I wasn't looking all around or paying attention to what might be going on with, with, uh, pedestrians. So some information, unfortunately it doesn't help the police too much because it's, it's very vague information and it's a little unconfirmed when we have two people saying that they saw slightly different, uh, things. Now this too, like Brad's case, was well reported in the newspapers at the time. The Vindicator covered this case and interviewed the police and family daily uh, and continued to after after his body was found. And unfortunately, he's he goes missing. He's reported missing late on the 17th of January. And one thing we got to keep in mind, too, not only is this kid diabetic, so you're scared of that. We talked about there being snow on the ground. It's it's freaking cold out there, right? As a parent, you're like, my God, my kid's out there missing and it's freezing. So he's found, his body is found January 23rd, 1975. Basically, David is missing for six days before he's found. Yes. Last sighting at six o'clock. And oddly enough, he's found in the evening hours of the 23rd. And what's really weird about that, too, being found on the 23rd, and we'll get into that information, but, you know, we talked about the FBI trying to get the FBI involved. There was a call. So at 1.10 p.m. on the 23rd, this is the same day that his body would later be found, a man called the, the police department and spoke to the dispatcher. And it was a very short call. All the man said was, do you want the Evans boy? Don't hunt. Now, this is 1975. So my guess here, Captain, is that, that this may not have been recorded. And this is just the dispatcher taking a note and then typing up a report immediately afterwards. Right. But according to the dispatcher, the caller was a male caller. And the caller said, do you want the Evans boy? Don't hunt. And then the caller hung up the phone. I'm only bringing that up because I'm hoping somebody can tell me what to make of it. I don't know. I don't know how to take that. The best way that I can take that is that I know in other cases that we've covered that there have been phone calls received or letters sent that later were confirmed to be just a complete hoax that had nothing to do with the actual case when the case is solved. But this to me, almost like I thought when I first found this information, oh, maybe we're getting some kind of ransom request, but it's such a short conversation. And then again, the odd thing is the boy's body is found just hours later. Yeah. When you get that call initially, like you said, don't hunt. What does that mean? Does that mean don't go looking for the child in, in, in rural areas? Does it mean that he's going to be in the city somewhere or is this a setup call to set up uh, some kind of negotiation for a ransom? But then, like you said, David's found a few hours after this phone call. The other thing that's an interesting thought on this phone call too here, Captain, is that the Evans family, and this was not made clear 
while he was still missing. I believe this information only came out in the papers after his body was recovered, but his family had said that they were receiving strange phone calls before he even went missing, that they were getting uh, hang-up calls, which again could have everything to do with the case or could mean absolutely nothing at all. It's just it's too difficult to decipher. Well, it's tough, too, when you have kids of this age. This is the perfect age where kids are playing around on the phone or when you called your buddy. I, 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 had, I had several friends that I would call, and if their, their dad answered the phone, I'm hanging up because he was mean and scary. You know, if the mom, <laughs> right. if, if the mom answered the phone, it was like, Hey, is Tommy there? You know, anytime when you hear phone calls, you know, or, or uh, suspicious phone calls, it, it makes a juicier story, but that doesn't mean it has anything to do with these kids going missing. Right. And it was the seventies and you know, I'm, I'm not proud of this, but, uh, you know, me and my buddies used to hear people make prank phone calls on the radio and we thought it was hilarious and we would try to do our own, which were not very funny at all, to be honest with you, but mine were great. Yours were fantastic. We should have recorded those. Um, it was illegal to, right, right. His, his body unfortunately was found roughly at 5 PM on January 23rd, 1975. So the body is spotted by Hugh McCall. He's a realtor and he is, his company is at 12 Boardman Poland road. This is not terribly far away from where Bellino's body was recovered. Again, this is more in the businessy area of Boardman where both bodies are recovered. Now, mind you, yes, it's almost three years later, but so the way that this works, captain is Mr. McCall. He's at work all day at this location at his, you know, realty firm and him and his wife are getting ready to leave. His wife works for him or works with him there and they're getting ready to leave. And while they're leaving, he's spots something in the bushes or as he puts it in the bushes. And when he goes over to look and investigate to see what it is, unfortunately it turns out to be David Evans, which makes you wonder if, if the call saying don't hunt means the kid is going to be found within the city. That's what I was trying to think about there that, that maybe there is some, that there's something going on with that call because he was found so close to, to, to the time, the same time frame. But so McCall calls the police right away. And he says, I think I found the boy that you are looking for. So obviously he knows what he's seeing. He knows he, we have a body here and he's phoning it into police. And the dispatcher hands the phone to the detective because this is what everybody at the police department has been working on for six straight days. Right. right? So this is, as you pointed out, threat level midnight, right? Everything's extremely important here. And now this is, this is the biggest call Well, more so in this case, because like we said, there was, there was another case before this that, yes. So the cops look, the, the Thomas case, the Bradley case and the David case are probably the three biggest cases in that, you know, time period that have ever happened to this small law enforcement department. Yeah. And you have a lot of these guys, a lot of the officers and, and the, you know, the men and women of the Boardman police department have all worked now. Now they're sitting there going, I'm shit. And in the course of five years, I'm working my, my third child homicide case. I mean, so these guys and the women of Boardman Police Department, they don't forget this stuff. And so they they know the severity of it. I could only imagine the stress that it put on on these good people who are trying to do everything that they can to return these children alive, first of all. And then if if need be, bring some justice for the victim and the victim's family. So the Dispatcher hands the phone to the detective. It's Detective Belog who's working this case. He there's two or three that worked this case really, 
really hard here over the course of a couple of years, the, the early parts of the investigation. And then obviously uh, would have been replaced at some point. But the detective gets on the phone and says, would you repeat what you just said? And Mr. McCall repeated, I think I found the missing boy that you are looking for. And Mr. McCall goes on to say he is behind the famous recipe fried chicken restaurant on Route 224. So Mr. McCall was asked to give his location and his telephone number, which he does. He gives his business location. He was told to wait there for the police, wait behind the famous recipe fried chicken building. Now, his wife, while he's, you know, this is 1975, so he's he has to run into his business to make this phone call to police. His wife thought, you know what? Well, somebody should watch over the scene until either my husband returns to watch over it or the police arrive on the scene. Very smart and good by her. She says that she went over and stood there and, and tried to watch over the scene. But at some point she, she couldn't do it. It, it at some point it, it broke her down and she had to, to leave. So she's still there, but, but not directly at the scene. And the police are there very, very quickly. They basically find David Evans, frozen there at the scene. Remember we talked about it being cold. He's been gone for six days and everything that I've reviewed, captain, it, it seems very difficult and I've not seen anybody report when they think he was placed there. I do know that Mr. McCall and his wife both said the same thing that obviously we didn't notice him there until, till we called it in. Or we would have went over and checked before and called it in. And these two are going in and out of work each day. So there's a lot of reason to believe that. Well, hold on, because they're real estate agents, right? Yeah. They're going in and out of their building probably more than most people because they're part of their job is to leave their office and to show people houses. Unless they're bad at their job. Uh, Right. (laughs) They're not staying busy. But again, smart dumping spot because the person wouldn't be constantly within their office. And if you knew the vehicles that were, uh, if you knew the vehicles that were connected to that building and you knew that the vehicles were gone, then you would know when there was a good opportunity to leave a victim behind. And one thing I do not like, and I'm, I'm not happy to report this to the garage listeners because I do not have a good understanding on how this, on where he was found. So I don't have a good understanding on what kind of landscaping we have here, because in some reports it's stated as he's found near an embankment or having been thrown over some type of embankment. And then other reports say, just like the one we reported where he's found behind some bush bushes. Now, could the bushes in the embankment all be, the same location? Yes. Right. I don't have a picture of it from 1975 to tell you what it exactly it looks like. All I can do is go off of words from people that are not here to tell me what it looked like. What else do we know about David when he was found? You said he was frozen. Yes, he was frozen. So the way that this has been reported is that what the McCalls say that they saw when they were getting into their car was that they saw a knee sticking up in the snow in the bushes. That's why they go over to investigate. It's not just that they saw some random thing. They saw what looked to be a person or a part of a person. So they see this knee sticking up in the snow in the bushes. The newspaper reported that David's body, he was found when he was found, he was on his back with one knee bent and one leg straight. His hands were on his chest. His clothing was pulled up to about the neck area at, but they believe police believe that this is because he was dragged so that somebody pulled up and when they were disposing of the body, they got him out of their vehicle and then, then had to drag him along the way. So I guess if you're being drugged by your feet, it would naturally push your, your shirt up as you're being dragged along the ground. Right. The coroner told the newspaper that an x-ray showed that David's left wrist had been broken and that there was, and I want to clarify on this. His words to the newspaper is that there was a half inch in diameter 
by half inch deep, perfectly round puncture wound that was found on David Evans's back. This would be roughly about three inches above the belt line. And it's not directly in the center of the back. The way that it looks to me, Captain, that this would be a little bit to the right. And they don't seem to understand what could have caused that hole. And I I do want to report here that this report is probably the most accurate because this is the coroner saying it's a half inch in diameter and a half inch deep. But I've also seen this reported as big as one inch in diameter and one inch deep and as small as a quarter inch in diameter and a quarter inch deep. So a little inconclusive on the exact size of that. But the interesting thing here is we're told per the coroner that the wrist, he could confirm that the wrist was broken after the boy's death. They didn't know exactly what caused this puncture wound or this hole, but what they could say is that it didn't come from a knife and it didn't come from a bullet. I guess the other thing that we should clear up here too is they go on to say that it did not, it was not consistent with an insulin injection as well. So unfortunately, we know that David Evans is diabetic. The cause of death was determined to be a diabetic coma. Right. This is going to cause a lot of problems for the investigation in, in my opinion, and from what I've seen that has taken place over the years. So because he dies of, you know, I guess natural causes this diabetic coma, there there becomes a debate if this is a homicide or not. Well, like you said, we have three three young boys that go missing that are found. All three looks like some version of homicide. Like you said, you could debate this about David's, where to me it leans more so that this is a homicide is because we almost have a secondary crime scene with some kind of struggle. And he he's obviously taken away from where he was heading to or him not ending up at his house to me means that this is a crime. And you are spot on my friend. And I'll tell you what, and that's why I'm giving mad kudos and props to the Boardman police department, because again, we've seen this situation where a coroner, an autopsy is conducted and we have someone who rules it an OD or, uh, or an accidental death or in this case, uh, a diabetic coma. And then the police department in that area just doesn't do anything with it because. Yeah. And was there any sign of sexual assault? No, here there is no sign of sexual assault, which are no obvious signs of sexual assault, according to the coroner. And that I think further complicates the case. Now, kudos to the Boardman police department because they go, okay, well, this is, this is a suspicious death, you know, and that's how we're going to treat this going forward. We can't, we don't have the coroner backing us up saying that this was a homicide, but we can say, given the evidence that we have, that we believe it to be a suspicious death and they, they treated it as such. So they didn't just close up shop. Once he was found, they continued to investigate this for years and did a lot of really good boots on the ground work. And you even have the, the, the police officers and detectives who have come out and they said, no, look, this is why it was a homicide, right? And we believe that this was an abduction because as you pointed out, the kid said he was going home. He was very close to his home when he said he was going home. His hat is found in the snow. His hat is found in the snow trampled. So obvious signs of a struggle, probably somebody grabbed him off the streets, put him in their vehicle. And then here's the other thing. He's not just going to die of a diabetic coma as soon as he's you know, at, at 6.01 PM, right after his dad finds him or talks to him. No, he didn't need that insulin shot until 7.30 AM the next morning. So he's not going to start to get into trouble with that until the next morning. So again, somebody kept this kid, kept him where I don't know. But the other thing they were able to determine was the, the contents of his stomach the contents found in his stomach did not match up with what was known to be his last meal. 
So signs of a struggle in the street. He obviously was somewhere for a long period of time before his diabetes took over. And he ate a meal and it's, it's reported to be a, a considerably large meal. So he was fed something or ate somewhere. And the police have gone on to say, look, the, the broken wrist, this took place after he died. He didn't just sneak off in the middle of the night, hang out somewhere all night long, even though he knew that he needed an insulin shot, eat a meal somewhere, and then decide to curl up in the snow behind these bushes and die and then break his own wrist afterwards. You know, so they're, they're pointing out that there's obvious signs to seasoned detectives and seasoned police officers that are saying, we have signs that are pointing to not only an abduction, but then somebody having dumped the body after the boy died. Captain, this is such a large case spanning the course of five years, three different homicides. Next week, we're going to revisit these cases. We got much more to discuss in all three cases, as well as are they connected? And if so, who are some of the suspects that could have been involved in these murders? Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We appreciate the support more than we could ever let you know. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners? Baseball is back, baby, and opening day is upon us. If you are a fan of the bigs and or Cleveland sports in general, you will want to check out this week's recommended reading titled Cleveland Indians Yesterday and Today by friend of the show, Phil Trexler. Everybody loves an underdog. And few teams can claim to have as many decks stacked against them as the Cleveland Indians, or the Guardians, as the kids are calling them. Despite winning only two World Series in more than 100 years, the Indians have captured the hearts of their fans. Check out Cleveland Indians yesterday and today. You can find that title and many more on the recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. And if you need more True Crime Garage, go to truecrimegarage.com and sign up for our bonus show called Off the Record. Until next week, be good, be kind, and don't let us. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.